0: Someone Don't say Sure. My wife, Dory, has told me on more than one occasion that, that I have lived two or three lives before we ever got married. <laughs> you know, I like to think of it as rather instead of you know, more in the lines of having a, an eclectic background in, in, my, in my life. You know, I, I did a lot of things before becoming a pastor. Um, one person might say, you know, I bounced from job to job with no direction. I like to think of it as, you know, a season of building my resume, you know, and getting a lot of different experience. Well, one of those jobs that I had was a ranch hand outside of Big Timber, Montana. I was just, I did grunt work at, on a cattle and sheep ranch, and I loved it. I mean, they paid me like literally like 100 bucks a week. Gave you room and board, and, you know, what more could a single guy want? So the cattle part, from my perspective, was fairly easy. I didn't have a whole lot to do with them. You know, just um, they were, you know, feed them, water them, make, make sure they're safe, make sure they're not getting out of the fence. The sheep, on the other hand, they were dumb and annoying and took a whole lot of work. Because each night we'd have to bring them in, and if you just turned your back on the sheep, they would go get themselves stuck in a barbed wire fence. Yet it's through this image of sheep, specifically a lamb, that the Bible uses to describe Jesus to us. We've been going through this Christmas series of sermons entitled, He Shall Be Called. We've been looking at the names of Jesus over this month of December. And thus far, we've looked at Messiah, Lord of Lords, Great High Priest. These are more than just random names that God gives his son. Each of these deal with how he impacts our lives in different ways. Well, today we want to wrap up this, this series of names by coming to the last one, when it says, he shall be called the Lamb of God. And for our text this morning, I'd like to look at John chapter 1, and, and specifically John the Baptist. And this is not a, a typical Easter passage of scripture that we often look to. Um, you know, we, we don't always think about John the Baptist when, it, when, it, when we talk about Easter. You know, we, a lot of times we focus on Jesus in the manger, the wise men, the angels, shouting glory to God in the highest. But today, a little different approach as we wrap up this Advent season. Because we want to look at John's identity, but more so John's message that he brings to us today. And John's message really tells us the why of Christmas in one sentence. So we'll begin in John chapter 1, verse 19, as we explore this idea of his identity first. Beginning in verse 19, it says this. Now this was John's testimony when when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Well, they asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me whose straps of of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Well John's identity was a mystery because these religious leaders come to him and they're they're basically scratching their heads saying who is this guy? So the interrogation of John begins, and they start to pepper him with questions, interrogate him to try to figure out who this guy was. And I'm sure if they had a bright light bulb, they would have hung it over his head and, and gone through the whole interrogation process. Well, they start with very generic questions as they try to figure out who this guy is. They're just kind of fishing for information. So it says in, in verse 19 that you know, they, they sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who he was. And he says right away that I am not the promised and awaited Messiah. So right from out of the gate, right from the get-go, John's saying who he's not. Well, well, then they press him a little further and ask, are you Elijah? Which is an interesting question because Elijah was an Old Testament prophet, long dead and gone. However, John's shared a lot of striking similarities with this Old Testament prophet prophet elijah fact, in matthew's gospel matthew describes the picture of john saying that john had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and back in the old testament in the book of second kings it describes elijah the prophet in a similar way and saying that elijah was a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist so just the fact that John is dressing like Elijah would have caused people's mind to think, well, maybe this is Elijah, and, and a lot of people believe that Elijah would return and come again. But their similarities were a lot more than skin deep, a lot more than their clothing and, an, and attire and the belt I wore around the waist. They were both prophets of God, and they both preached openly against sin. More importantly, they both called people to repent of their sin. But they they press a little further, and and they ask John again, are you the prophet? Notice they don't say "A, a prophet or just are you some kind of prophet. Are you asking, you know, are you the prophet? That's another way to say are you the Messiah? It's the same question. But their frustration grows, and they finally just ask him, who are you? And his answer is interesting because it reaches back 700 years and then forward to today. He answers by quoting another Old Testament prophet named Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesied 700 years before, and this is what Isaiah said. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Isaiah 40 is all about the return of Israel uh, to, uh, to their own land. It's all about restoration, not only physically to their land, but as a people of God. And John picks up on that theme of restoring God's people, and that restoration is the focus of John's ministry. He doesn't say that he is the Messiah. He simply says that I'm the voice of one who declares, get yourselves ready because restoration is about to happen. It's John's way of saying, I'm not the message, just the messenger. And then he continues, as we look further in Isaiah 40, we get a little more of the context that John would have brought to people's mind when he said that. Well, it says, a voice of one calling, John's talking about a smooth road for God to enter people's lives and do his restorative work. You know, a, a couple weeks ago, I, I drove the new portion of Highway 275 from Worcester to West Point. And what was once a very rough and dangerous road is now smooth. And when I hit that new section of pavement, I felt like the angels broke forth in the Hallelujah chorus, you know. Oh! And I drove all the way to Omaha. I'm like, this is awesome, four lanes, and just sailed right along. Well, John's ministry, in a sense, is like that. Removing the rough patches, removing the obstacles to prepare God's people's prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. So John is very clear about who he's not, saying, I'm not the Messiah, but I am the messenger getting people prepared. And I love John because he's constantly shifting the focus away from himself. You know, the, the, these leaders come and say, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And John's like, no, it's, it's not about me. It's about the one that I'm talking about. He constantly shifts the attention to Jesus. And as I studied that passage this week, I thought, man, that's a great reminder for who we are and for our ministry here at Journey. Because it's not about us. It's not about me or Adam or anybody else up here preaching. It's not even about the ministries of journey. It's about Jesus. It's about the fact that we want to point people to him. You know, you've heard us say that, that our vision here at Journey is to help people find, follow, and be like Jesus. Notice where the emphasis lies on Jesus as God's son and our mission how we do that is by making disciples of Jesus who go on to make more disciples of Jesus. You know, so we talk about intentional and relational disciple making. And we define a disciple here at Journey as someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus and living on mission for Jesus. So everything that we do here is focused on him, not ourselves, not building our own kingdom. But as a result, our church is growing in spite of me. You know, we're seeing some incredible growth here at Journey because I think our heart and our focus is in the right place. We're called to live our own individual lives, and we're called to, to be as a church to point other people to Jesus. And I love that about John. He was clear that he's just the messenger. He's just a witness. He kept saying that, you know, I am nothing. I can't even untie the places of the one coming after me, but let me tell you about the one that's coming. He's the one that you've been longing for. And this is where John's message gets really good because his message is simply here is the lamb, the Messiah. So when Jesus comes, John immediately recognizes for who Jesus for who he is, and he's quick to point him out. Because in verse 29 of John chapter 1, it says this The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, in other words, look, pay attention. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And then towards the end of chapter 1, verse 34, John says, I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. Why would. John say that. Why would he say call him the lamb, the lamb of God? I mean, wouldn't Lion fit better? Something, you know, more powerful and impressive and you know, something like the the Lion King movie where that baboon is holding Simba above the plate and help John is singing, you know. That makes it that makes for a better movie. But John says it's a lamb. This lamb has come. And Pilate later exclaims that as he's ready to execute Jesus, he says, here is your king. But it did not have any connotation or any idea of what what the people wanted the king to be. So John proclaims his kind of head-scratching statement, here's the Lamb of God. And that Lamb of God is going to take away the sin. Well, there in one sentence is the whole why. Christmas. The essence of Christianity sums up that Jesus, as the Lamb, takes away the sin. So, what does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb? Well, one, the Lamb provides a sacrifice. Now, he, he, this is where knowing the context of John is, is so important. Knowing what's going on in these chapters around um, the, the statement that John makes. Because this encounter of John and Jesus takes place just a few days before the annual Passover celebration, so everybody in that region would would have been going through the preparation to celebrate this major holiday for the Jewish people, and the focus of the Passover celebration was, you know, you guessed it, the sacrifice of a lamb, and that sacrifice served as a reminder of God's deliverance of the Israelite people from Egypt. And if you remember the story in Exodus chapter 12, God gave the command of the Israelites to slaughter a lamb and use the blood of that lamb to paint their doorposts. And when God sent an angel of death throughout Egypt, if the angel saw the blood on the doorposts, he would pass over them and, not, and death would not enter that house. And that's where, where the name comes from. Passover and the Passover then becomes a major festival that God instructs his people to celebrate year after year to commemorate the fact that God saved the Israelite people and each year then um, to celebrate it a family would purchase a lamb and a family each family would have that lamb sacrificed on the altar as a memorial to the deliverance that God gives. So it was all about forgiveness, sin, and salvation from the chains of sin. But but they did it more than just one time a year. In fact, uh, lambs would be sacrificed on the altar in Jerusalem uh, twice a day, morning and night, because of sin. Because blood was required and must be shed for sin to be forgiven. And these lambs would, continually point to the one who was to come sent from God to shed his blood one time and for all one and done sacrifice each of those sacrifices that they would do kind of foreshadowed something better yet to come and Jesus was the lamb sent by God to offer his life as a sacrifice Isaiah 53 puts it this way verse 7 referring to this lamb, saying he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. So the lamb provides a sacrifice, but the lamb also provides a substitute. Now, it's worthy to note that in the in the Old Testament system, in order for the sins of the people to be forgiven, the people had to purchase the lamb and bring the lamb to the priests. You know, the, the sinful ones would bring the lamb. But who brought the lamb of God to be sacrificed? God did. God took this initiative and brought his lamb, his son, as a substitute. That Jesus is this gift provided by God to take away our sins so that we would not perish. As John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal. See, God takes the initiative in coming to us. God took the initiative in sending the Lamb of God. the price, the price for our sin, I mean, it should should have been us on that cross. It should have been us paying the price for our sin. And that's how the Old Testament sacrifices were all set up. Yet God took this initiative and provides a way of escape. He, He sent the Lamb who could completely and perfectly pay for the penalty of our sin once and for all. So Jesus, as the Lamb of God, he he died in our place. He's the only one whose death is sufficient to pay that penalty. So not only is he simply a lamb to sacrifice for God, he is the lamb, the one that people waited for and longed for. And the lamb eventually became the lion on the throne. It's one and the same as we know from Scripture. But before Jesus, as king, could ascend that throne, he first had to lie down on the altar. There's a, a painting that I'd like to show you here on the screen. This is called Agnus Dei, which is Latin for Lamb of God. And that, as I was reading the scripture and studying this passage this week, I came across this painting that was done in 1640 by a Spanish author, or artist rather, and I think it beautifully depicts what's going on. It's, it's the lamb was bound and it's laying on the cross. And I, I kept that picture before me as I was working on this message about the lamb of God, and it just illustrates the lamb as a conquering hero. But does that look like a conquering hero? No, oh, it looks like the sacrifice of a lamb. See all the religious leaders; they would, they would, you know, go to bat for the Lion of Judah. They wanted to hear about the Lion, the conquering King, the military leader, and the Lamb did eventually become that. But first, he had to lay his life on the cross, and the people just couldn't wrap their head around that kind of image for their Messiah. Well, the Lion conquered because he was sacrificed as a Lamb. Tells us in. Revelation chapter 5, about this conquering lamb, this conquering lion. It says, this is John writing, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. See, the Lamb of God, He provides a sacrifice. The Lamb of God provides a substitute. And ultimately, the Lamb of God provides satisfaction. Satisfies the demand of justice that God placed upon sin. I mean, God is gracious and kind and merciful, but God is also holy and just. And his, his holiness demand that a price of, of sin be paid. But when Jesus, as the Lamb of God, offered himself on the cross, that price was paid and God's wrath was appeased. And what I love about Christmas is that it ultimately points us to the cross. That's why John's message of Christmas is one that says, look, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And that baby in the manger that that we sing about, you know, the angels declaring the glory to God in the highest, that Christmas is all about Easter. It's all about the cross. So instead of wrath, this baby in a manger, it brings us grace, God's grace in our lives. Invite the praise team back up this morning. You know, John's message really the message of Christmas, it's a message of hope. Hope for us all, because we have no other hope than to come to Christ. We need no other hope than Christ. And through the sacrifice of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. You know, there there's a famous conductor named Arturo Toscanini, and Toscanini was known for his huge ego, but as also his, his excellence as a musical conductor. And one evening, the great Toscanini uh, conducted Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is considered Beethoven's masterpiece, the culmination of his achievement, and it concludes with his famous song "Ode to Joy" as the final tune of the symphony. And that night, the performance was brilliant. And at the close of the symphony, the crowd went crazy, they applauded Tuscanini, they clapped, they whistled, they stamped their feet, and Tuscanini stood there and, and bowed and bowed and acknowledged his orchestra. But when the, fi- when the ovation finally subsided, Tuscanini uh, turned and whispered to his, me- his musicians, talked to his orchestra, and he says, "Musicians." I am nothing, which was a huge admission because he was blessed with an, an enormous ego. But then he said, musicians, listen, you are nothing. Then he finally said, but, but Beethoven, Beethoven is everything. You know, we can, we can echo that sentiment as we proclaim along with John the Baptist that Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, is everything. He is our everything. So focus your eyes on him. Put your life in, the, in his and follow after him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the message of Christmas. I thank you for John the Baptist reminding us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Because of that, Lord, we have hope, we have freedom, and we can sing of the joy this Christmas season. Lord, we pray, praise you in the name of Jesus.